we really are the expert of ourselves, right? So for female athletes of there's going to be coaches and trainers and administrative staff saying, here's what you need to do. But at the end of the day, we really are the best expert of ourselves. We are the only ones that really know what our need is. And so it's important that we're doing that work to link knowing what that work is that I hadn't done as a young athlete. I hadn't, I hadn't done that work. And so it's one of the reasons I'm passionate about working with teens and young athletes now is we have to do that early on so that we can be better athletes, so that we can be better humans, so that we can be more grounded in our day-to-day living. Hey there, you're listening to Virago Pod, a podcast that is dedicated to empowering and improving the physical and mental health of female athletes everywhere. This podcast is brought to you by The Virago Project, a nonprofit organization that helps female athletes balance sports with life. I'm your host, Emily McGee-Zeslowski. And I'm your co-host, Taylor Tracy. Let's jump right into the episode. Hi, Virago Warriors, and welcome back to episode 31 of Virago Pod. On today's episode, we have Katie Steele joining us of Thrive Mental Health, where we talk some about mental health prevention at an early age and also connectivity to self. Katie competed for the University of Oregon and Florida State University in cross country and track, and she now works with women athletes to break down barriers they encounter in both sport and life. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and registered yoga teacher as well. I love Katie's perspective on how we have to learn to notice feelings and link what those feelings are to what our body's feedback is to better understand our emotions and kind of work through it as, um, again, not just athletes, but humans as well. Hopefully you'll leave this episode with some tips and some ways to check in on your feelings, behaviors, and emotions, uh, while also providing important insight to anyone who's a mentor to young athletes or young women on the importance of having these conversations early. All right, without further ado, let's get on to today's episode. I will bring on Katie. All right. On the line now, I have got Katie Steele from Thrive Mental Health. And thank you so much for agreeing to come on today. I am really excited for our listeners to hear more about what you do and what you've learned uh, through your career. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the platform that you all have created. You do amazing work for female athletes, which is such a passion of mine. So thanks for having me. Thanks for all that you do. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been so surprising. Like, when Taylor and I first started the podcast, we're like, we cannot afford to pay people. Like we are a nonprofit. We're not paying ourselves. We cannot afford. So like, I hope people agree to come on. And so it's just been overwhelming the amount of support and lo- like the cause is something that so many people care about. So thank you for the mm-hmm. kind words, uh, because I have found that to be a, one of the best parts is how supportive everyone is about these cause and these, these athletes. Yep. Your passion pours through in all of it. Yeah. Um, so to, first to start off, can you tell me a little bit about what you do, what Thrive Mental Health is, and why you specifically chose um, to work with, with athletes? Mm-hmm. So th- I am based out of Bend, Oregon, and we have a mental health clinic with a, you know, a group of providers. And what drew me to the work is, you know, I think about it and my parents are amazing humans. And from the time I was little, they always kind of focused on seven intel, the seven intelligences. And um, they punctuated of, you know, my strength being more in 
interpersonal dynamics. And, you know, for a while, especially in high school, I was like, yeah, yeah, guys, it's because I just don't do well on the SAT. <laughs> That's really nice to like try to make me feel good. Um, so I think I was drawn to the work probably somewhat primally early on in the sense of being drawn to dynamics and perceiving and that sensing and connection. Um, so there was probably some destiny in terms of doing human type work that I love. I love people. I love personal development. I love growth. I, I find our job and our field to be such a privilege that people let us into the underbelly of their world and have the courage to unpack their stuff and reflect and dig in. There's um, every day is incredibly inspiring. And so I think early on there was, you know, some kind of draw to that work. And then college athletics were really probably the like solidifier of this is a type of work or field I'm going to go into. I had a really hard, I had a really, really hard experience with college athletics. And um, I learned an, an unfortunate life lesson that that mind body connection of things got hard. I ended up transferring um, my junior year and it was icky and it felt uncomfortable and I overtrained. So I was numbing my emotions. I was numbing what my experience was by overtraining. And, you know, we get kind of praised as that for athletes, right? Of like, just do it, show up, work harder. Um, and I learned the mind body connection right off the bat, right? Of my, I got three stress fractures in my foot and I tore the ligaments and tendons in my ankle and then spent nine months in a boot. And so I looked back at that time of that was my body of your soul isn't ready for this. And so part of my passion was ignited at that point in time of really seeing and experiencing that mind body connection. And then it, you know, as I did my own work through it of learning, there are some really toxic and even corrupt systems. And I hope, I hope we get to see some of those systems change as youth go into these environments that they don't have to come out with scars and wounds and needing to do as much like emotional repair work for themselves. I want to see that change. That's what needs to happen. And in the meantime, the work that I get to do now with females and fe young female athletes is how do we equip kids basically to go into these environments as connected to themselves as possible so that as we work on hopefully seeing the systemic change of toxicity that they are equipped with the connection to themselves to be a good advocate for themselves to know the feedback they're getting from their bodies and that's where a lot of my passion lies of we don't always have control over our environment but how do we make sure that we are in tune with what our needs are Yes. I think, um, it's very common for not only women athletes, but women in general, just to be told by society and men and even other women that a lot of the feelings they're feeling are dramatic or emotional or PMS. And I think the earlier we can start those conversations is phenomenal because it's definitely a problem. Um, and that takes out, you know, the whole add athletes onto it. That's a whole nother layer of pressure mm -hmm. and not to be weak and things like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. Totally. You, you kind of touched on it a bit about your own personal journey, but can you tell me more about why normalizing mental health issues is important to you personally and how you think women athletes as a whole can benefit from your experiences and, and the things you just talked about? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a soapbox topic for me because mental health has gotten this interesting 
Um, and we're on the cusp, I think, of seeing this change change some, but there's this perception that it's this like acute mental illness at this period of time when it's really exacerbated for a human. And that's what we oftentimes think and see portrayed in the media as mental health. When in reality, literally every single one of us has mental health, every single one of us of emotions, thoughts, feelings, those are things that every single one of us have. And none of us are born with the ability to know how to regulate them and to cope with them and even to identify And Brene Brown in one of her amazing studies, she said that as humans were born to recognize three emotions, happy, sad, and mad, which just like scratches the surface of the quantity of emotions that we actually experience. And so that's a learned behavior, right? We have to learn how to notice those feelings, how to um, be able to link what is that feeling? What is my body's feedback? And so we have to normalize, my hope is, and I, I, I think we're starting to see a shift in this, normalize mental health because it's something we all interface with. It isn't that there's something problematic or that there's something wrong with you. We really are the expert of ourselves, right? So for female athletes, of there's going to be coaches and trainers and administrative staff saying, here's what you need to do. But at the end of the day, we really are the best expert of ourselves. We are the only ones that really know what our need is. And so it's important that we're doing that work to link knowing what that work is that I hadn't done as a young athlete. I hadn't, I hadn't done that work. And so it's one of the reasons I'm passionate about working with teens and young athletes now is we have to do that early on so that we can be better athletes, so that we can be better humans, so that we can be more grounded in our day-to-day living. Yeah. I think that's really important because I think there's like two different sides of it. A lot of times people, even people who, even athletes, they see mental health issues or depression or anxiety, or even like, let's take just even performance pressure as like situational. So then they think like, oh, because, okay, this, my teammate's family member died. Okay. I understand that, that, that probably will lead to depression and people all lean in, they give support. There's count, like they're like, understand. Cause it's a very visual thing. They can say this X, Y, Z life event happened. And now I can see that this was it. And for me personally, I got diagnosed with depression when I was 10 years old and I, not until college, when I really started some intensive therapy, did I realize that there's also triggers that like, just because I've always had it, there's still events that can impact my depression more. So I think that's almost like both sides. Like if you don't understand your feelings and what can't put words to it, like you said, like it's very hard to even know where to start in tackling it and not just overcoming it, but trying to kind of like identify the feelings, I guess. Absolutely. And, and mental health, I I hope one of the reasons that we can see it get normalized is for exactly that. It's typically symptom responsive right now. Right. And although we have amazing physicians, what oftentimes happens is that 10 year olds or 12 year olds or 18 year olds are then referred to mental health services when there's a problem, when there's a symptom, right? When there's depression, when there's anxiety, when there's suicidality, when there's performance anxiety, that's when then people are referred to services versus like, we all have all of those emotions and it's a spectrum and it looks different for everybody. But then what we'll see is we'll have, you know, teens or anybody, any adult pop into our office and they're like, well, something's obviously wrong with me because my doctor or my parent or my spouse or whoever thinks I'm my coach, my, they, they think I need to be here. And it's like, yeah. No, we think the exact opposite of, right, this is a really empowered choice that people can make to 
stay ahead of it. If we're all, we're all going to have hard seasons. There's going to be things that are going to come up for all of us. And how can we learn those skills preventatively instead of in response to, in, in response to a symptom? And there's always going to be a place and we need to make sure we continue to create a place for symptom responsive care because it happens and crises arise. And we need to make space of, this is something we all experience at different times in different ways, but something that we're all going to experience. Yeah, I think that um, brings up, well, one, so many good points, and especially like the way of talking about it, like before. So I was previously married, divorced, like we tried some counseling when it was, I, to be honest, I, I don't want to say counseling's ever too late because it's better to go than not to go. But like for our specific situation, it was definitely too late to try marriage counseling. And then when my next relationship came, I downloaded one of those like, um, we didn't go to formal couple counseling. It was like one of those like online things that we did and like answered questions and we talked about it. And I was like, this is like so much healthier, like doing this ahead of time when we don't have problems, when we're like just dating. And I'm like, I wish so bad. and, And trust me, I only did this because I had such a horrible experience. And my therapist said too, like, you know, you have to be careful about repeating patterns and things like that. Um, like, I was like, I wish like everyone could feel this way. Cause I was like, I got so much closer with my now husband. And I was like, this was like the most beneficial thing that we had done for our relationship and understanding each other. Cause it asked questions about like how our parents loved each other, how our parents loved us as a kid. And it was like things that I had never even thought about. Um, cause my last, the last couple's counseling, it was like, okay, let's talk about anger. And like, it just was coming from like a very painful place where this was coming from like a place of understanding and peace. So I think, I think that's like one of the best things that not just in relationships, but for your own self, if you can go in and start having those check-ins early, um, will be great. So I, I think that kind of brings us to the next topic of mental health prevention. Can you tell me what more this looks like and some tips on how women can start utilizing it, um, earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think your example of relationships is a great one because there's in Seattle, there's a place called the Gottman Institute and they've done a ton of research on couples. And one of the statistics they found is that couples wait an average of six years with an ongoing problem before going to couples counseling. And I think that's probably transferable across whatever quote unquote symptom there is, right? If people are waiting oftentimes until it's so acute and then to your point, all the repair and the hurts and the resentments that have been accrued, it's it's a different type of work than if we're entering at a preventative point of there isn't necessarily a problem, but it's something that I'm looking to learn and be inquisitive about what's going on. How can I have a healthy dynamic with somebody else, with myself? Um, what is that going to look like? And where there's such a, especially right now, there's such a, there's such a need that we're not, we haven't shifted services up that ladder yet. And this is where like my passion lies in prevention of we, we need to be making a transition to getting people in sooner. I think one way that could look is implementing, uh, preventative screenings at pediatrician appointments, right? Where it's like every 12 year old gets a screening, whether there's a mental health symptom or not. Because what we know is 
people are going to show symptoms when there's it's already so so all encompassed right if we want to be we want to be normalizing that process not because there's a problem but because it's something we all need so even at a you know doing an, an annual check-in i think is one way of implementing preventative services i think schools are a really good access point for that too because they're that's a a resource that a lot of kids are a part of. And, you know, some, some school districts are doing a great job with this of um, social skills groups and naming emotions. And this is becoming more, more familiarized language in school systems than I think when we were in school, right? Of talking about emotions, feelings, connectivity to self, advocacy. Um, that's getting to be a little bit more more mainstream. My dream is I think everybody needs a counselor. So when people come in and they're like, there's something wrong with me, I'm like, no, I really just believe it to be so different because why don't we all have a counselor like we have a dentist? Right? Of why literally what I'm just thinking of the example. Like, do people enjoy yeah. the dentist? No, but like they go every year and maybe go to a follow-up after it if they need it. Like so silly. Yeah. It's so silly. And it could be the exact same structure, right? You go once or twice a year. If there's something that flares up and you need to go, you already have a point person because one of the barriers we see all the time is that there's such long wait lists. So the access to services is pretty flawed, right? There's such a long lag time. We need to increase timely access to care. Um, but if you have established care, you know exactly who to call. You know they're in network with your insurance. You know you have the rapport established. So if you're establishing the rapport when there isn't a crisis or there isn't a problem, it's going to be a lot easier to connect and reach out to that person when you need them as well. And hopefully be kind of priming that pump of, okay, what are my feelings? I mean, I have this really weird tendency if I get worried or anxious, I'll pick my cuticles, which is just so interesting, right? But it's learning those intricacies of what are ways that these feelings manifest for me? And what am I going to do with that? And how am I going to respond? Um, it's, it's it needs to be this daily language, right? Of working with our kids of noticing the feelings. Yes. I think Ultimately, too, like you said, it kind of starts at home. It, it, it starts with the the normalization and not people like coming to your parents and like on the reverse side, like if saying I want to go to therapy, it's not your parents. Like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Like, so I think the more we can have these conversations across the board and making therapy or um, speaking to even just speaking to your pediatrician or general practitioner, depending on your age, about it, like making that not be like you do not have to be suicidal. And you're, you not need to be in immediate danger in order to say something to someone. And just because someone's saying they want some help does not mean that that's what they actually mean, that it's much worse than what it is. I think that's um, a great point. I, I love the dentist comparison. I think that's spot on. It's a necessary thing everyone does every year. Your pediatrician will get on you. Have, have you gone to, we just had our one year mm -hmm. checkup. Your daughter has teeth. Have you gone to the, 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 the pediatric dentist yet? No, we haven't. Okay. Well, make sure you do this in the next few months. Like it's, mm -hmm it's something that's expected. Um, and how are you going to say that your teeth aren't on the same level as your general soul and well-being and brain and mind and heart and everything like that? 100%. There's, they're all interconnected, right? It isn't, we don't, we, we aren't living life in a silo. They're, they're, they're all under the same umbrella and we have to be tending to every component. And I think even taking kids to a dental appointment, the first couple of times is nerve wracking and they're scared and it's unsettling and they don't know the dentist. And, um, you know, our oldest is six and he, we take him sporadically to somebody because I'm like, okay, let's learn that this is just another person of your care team. 
Mm -hmm. right? There's no shame. There's no stigma. It's not because something's wrong with you. It's because we want to be tending to your health, not responding to symptoms, right? And if we respond, if we honor our health, then oftentimes we can at a minimum reduce the symptoms, right? Because we're staying ahead of it. We're intervening earlier, early intervention across the board. There's just so much backing and, and effectiveness to it. It's why we do it's why we intervene with learning, learning needs in school, right? We, we need to be the same with our mental and emotional health that we all have. Yes, because again, I'm on the, you know, more extreme side of the spectrum. But personally, I was like, when I was 10 depression, I was only diagnosed because I was already suicidal at that age. And it took me a good six sessions before I even would talk to my, to my therapist or counselor about it. Like the first time we just played checkers, the next time I learned some chess, then connect four. And it's because I did not have that relationship. I was like, so scared to talk. It took me a long time to tell my parents, I'm not going to just tell a stranger on the first thing. So if you can start before there's an issue, one, it probably wouldn't have gotten as bad for me. And then two, it had been a much easier transition when you do start noticing those, um, you know, little, little red flags to jump on it and fix it. Similar to like, if you wait for the dentist four years, that's when you need a root canal and four cavities instead of just a nice little one that can be done under local anesthesia. So, um, I think that's a really good point just for the, it's not just about normalizing it. It's like, it's not just everyone needs it. Even if things aren't bad, it's also like, if things do get bad, this will be a much more efficient way. Like athletes who rehab an injury they had four years ago, they still do their ACL exercises and things like that. It's really no different than just starting all that stuff early. Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying too. And I appreciate you sharing your story of it does take a while to open up and to feel comfortable. And and it's scary then to name it to parents or to a clinician or to a coach or a teacher, whoever are those point people for each individual. And so if, if it's named beforehand, then it's the door has been opened. Right. So I think of prevention of how do we open the door for people? So it isn't this shameful, embarrassing, something's wrong with me response of, Oh, somebody had mentioned the word depression. I've heard that before the way they explain it. I feel like that's where I'm feeling it in my body. That's how it's, that's how it's manifesting for me. Or there's some similarities or I'm curious these are the these are the ways it's showing up for me. Would it be depression? I heard that word. Is that something that it would fall under this umbrella of like we need to through preventative models be opening that door for people so that they don't have to open it and then do all of the walking through too, right? They're already on the journey. How can we alleviate some of the barriers systemically? Totally. And it, it's the same thing. Like unfortunately, like like with anxiety, like a lot of times it's not until people are having full blown panic attacks that they're like, mm-hmm. I thought I had a heart attack that that they got help. So the earlier, same with eating disorders, um, they, they didn't see what they saw in necessarily Hollywood as the eating disorder. Um, so they didn't think that that was them or they didn't think they looked like those people. So I think the earlier we can bring awareness to all those things, um, is, is super important. Um, and something you touched on earlier as well was, um, kind of the, you, you mentioned connectivity to self. And I think that's something that we are extremely lacking, uh, not just, as humans in general, women specifically, and I'd even argue athletes more. Um, and because a lot of times, like we've talked about very early on, women are kind of encouraged just to pack up their emotions in a suitcase, compartmentalize. And, um, you know, it's seen as a weakness if you have feelings or you're tired or you're stressed. So why, why is this such a problem and how can athletes start to can you tell what exactly it is even to, to address connectivity to self and 
how we can connect to our emotions more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think for female athletes, that's like almost the superpower, right? Of the ability to push through pain, the ability to almost ignore the discomfort and compete, compete or complete the race or whatever the case may be of, it takes this, this extra level of grit to compete in athletics, right? And so part of that is shutting out from the emotions because your body's saying like, just stop. You are so tired, just stop. And you power through anyway, and that's rewarded. And that's the that's kind of the objective of athletics, right? Is to push yourself point past that point. And it's great for athletics in a lot of ways. And I, my hope is, is that we can see where that get, gets bridged to connectivity to self. Of I'm doing that in athletics, but that doesn't mean it's going to be transferable to every variable of my life. I can compartmentalize and push through pain and kind of shut off those signals and have like very strong self-talk, internal dialogue to continue playing. But when I'm off the court or I'm off the field or I'm out of the race, how do I really honor what I'm needing so that we can then use those variables instead of just shutting off and numbing as athletes, taking inventory of, okay, this is self-doubt. I know what that is. It's not that I actually need to quit this event. It's that I'm having self-doubt. And so I know that's what's saying in my body so I can continue pushing in this race. So the connectivity to self happens off the field, right? Of the first step is always noticing. How much do we notice? And I think this is this is an interesting thing to do as teens and as adults of what is our baseline recognition, right? To go back to referencing that Brene Brown study of we only know three. And it's amazing how many adults still only know three right? Because we don't, we don't train ourselves to notice more. We react and emotions aren't really what's problematic. It's our reaction to the emotions, right? How are we responding to the emotions? And so the first step for the connectivity to the self piece is noticing. What is that? What is that saying? Okay. I noticed myself picking my cuticles. There's a behavior there that's happening, right? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I needing? And so taking inventory to know what what is your baseline and then how do you increase that? Thinking about it like peeling an onion basically, right? Of, okay, now that I noticed, what does that mean? Where else am I feeling it? What's my body telling me? How do I honor that? Well, how am I gonna make space for what my experience is? It's always kind of the first, um, the first piece to get the like, baseline information, right? Because we don't want to live in that mind over matter world that I think a lot of us is our athlete self have and think that that's like what makes us good, right? Is our ability to just plow through. And some of that, I, I, I can at least speak for myself of that, like perfectionism, right? Of like, this is me just being so honed in on my training. And it's like, girlfriend, like that's actually called anxiety. <laughs> Right. I'm like you're trying to white knuckle through your experience by keeping everything just systematic instead of honoring like what are they needing, which would make us better athletes. It makes us better athletes. The people I get to work with who are, you know, bold enough to do this work early on in life. What is able to how it takes the blinders off of their athletic performance has also been amazing, not to mention that they become just like more centered humans. Yeah, I think that's really I think, yeah, the, the noticing because. I used to, like, I've had young athletes before, you know, I've coached clinics and coached young athletes and girls who like watched me play at UNC. And they're like, why do I feel like when, you know, the game's close or whatever, when you're going back to serve, like you really do seem excited. Like you don't seem nervous. Like you're not afraid of losing. Like, how can that be a thing? And it's like, well, because you have to like first, and it's exactly, I used to be that way. 
And then you have to identify like why you feel that way. And then that's when it was like very easy of like, wait, so I'm afraid of losing. So I'm just going to not be my best self because I'm going to lose. Like, and so once, so once you can kind of process through your feelings and what you're feeling in that moment, it's much, much, much easier to channel it. But instead you're like, oh, I'm scared. Then all of a sudden, if you like, don't really understand and notice like what situations bring that and why, and where the outcomes are, um, that's like the first step. Like, it's okay to figure out you may have negative feelings. You don't want to be feeling as a woman, a human, an athlete, but that's not like a bad thing. Like that's really the first step in like fixing it and addressing it and being able to overcome it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're totally hitting the nail on the head. I agree with that wholeheartedly of we believe if we name it, it's going to make it worse, right? Or it's going to, it's going to uh, paralyze us. If I know, if I recognize and acknowledge that I'm, I'm afraid of losing, I'm afraid of how bad this is going to hurt that then we get more paralyzed. And what happens when we numb or we suppress the actual experience, it's the exact opposite, it actually exacerbates. Versus if we can say, I am so nervous to go into this. I don't, I don't, I I feel scared. This is a new opponent. I'm not sure if I'm if I'm equipped for this competition, then it takes the pressure away, right? It gives us the reins back and we're then holding the power. And I have this really bad, um, we live by a river, but it's this river analogy of if we suppress the feelings, it's as though we're swimming upstream, right? So we're fighting the current versus if we can say, yeah, this is what I'm feeling and own it and own our experience because we're so connected to ourselves. What happens is we turn around and we get to go with the current. So it, if we fight it, it exacerbates it versus if we can just lean into it, we actually get some more momentum behind us because we're taking the power back. I love that. It's so, though. Yes. No, no. It makes sense. Like it's, it's, it's like almost the, whatever steps backward in order to, to move forward. Um, what do you recommend? Like if someone's like, so let's say you just talk to someone, this is what they're trying to do. Like, is there any tips? Like I'm trying to brainstorm some ideas of like, maybe Carrie, we all have our phones with us, maybe putting it in notes, like um, journaling, like what have you found that works well for people who are having trouble either remembering or um, that are actually not following through with, with trying to identify their emotions? Yeah, I love both of those. I think, you know, a phone is so accessible, right? So putting a note, um, kind of keeping a log of what is my experience, even if I don't have time to like fully peel the onion back, I can at least make a reference point of what's coming up for me. I can't really remember earlier today, but let me go back to my notes and I can, oh yeah, my stomach got really twisted around lunch and I wasn't able to eat. What was that about? I can't really link to what that was. And you can kind of take yourself back. So the note's a great strategy. Journaling, I love. I love journaling. And it's one of those things that um, it's hard to do, at least for me. If The difference of if my journal's on my nightstand versus in my nightstand drawer, it's the difference of doing it versus not doing it. But what's so great about journaling is it extracts everything in our conscious. So it makes it so we we have a place that we can hold that information. So where it doesn't just like percolate internally. Some the thing I find interesting about journaling is you start and it kind of seems like, eh, I don't really know, or it can be like kind of listy at first. And then the stream of consciousness comes and you're flushing out all of the all of the information that's just kind of ruminating in there that you didn't really even know was that present for you oftentimes. Another tactic that I really like is um it's from the dialectical behavioral model is Um, it's a triangle. And at each point of the triangle, one point is thoughts, the other 
point, another point is feelings, and the third point is behaviors. And then it's interchangeable arrows to each of those, each of those words. And in the model, it basically punctuates that you can sever that cycle at any juncture. So the model even would say that you could shift your feelings. I personally have not been able to do that. But if you can identify here is I get really ner I get anxiety before a, a before a competition, before competing, then you can identify the feeling that's anxiety. What are the thoughts that often come up? I'm afraid I'm going to lose. What if I fall? What if I embarrass myself? What if I get what if I get too tired? What if I let my team down? Right. So those are the thoughts that come up when the anxiety is present. And then the behaviors are um, I get snappy with my family. I can't um, I can't eat breakfast. Right. Whatever those behaviors are, then you can you can identify what is a way to reframe the thoughts and what are other behaviors you can change. And if you can engage in one thing differently, that whole trajectory changes. And so for what I like about that is kind of a starting point as an activity is it's very tangible, right? Where a lot of this work is a little bit more abstracty and processy. You can really identify it in, in that cycle of here's what's going on for me, what's working, what isn't, and what are some of the changes I can make. And even if it's on the fly of you're going to class or engaging in a competition, and something comes up, you can say, okay, I identified the feeling or my thoughts are self-deprecating. I'm being really critical of self. I'm so fear-based right now. You can make one change, which might be as simple as like, I'm going to go wash my hands or I'm going to splash my face with water, but it's making a behavioral shift or a thought-based shift that will shift that whole pattern. Does that make sense? It's kind of weird yes. without being the visual. Okay. No, I think it's perfect. And so I, I'm even like just picturing it. I get the triangle analogy perfectly, but even if I was journaling, cause I, that's the hardest thing for me. I, um, I like journaling, but I've always been one of those persons who needed a prompt, um, that like, I'll fill in, like ask, like if the journals ask me something, I can lead, I can talk. Like I have with this like book for my daughter. Like I can't just journal about what happened today. It says like, share a good memory from what happened today. Tell me about the last picture you took. When's the last person she saw? But like, so this is very objectable. Even if I was just journaling, I picture this going just in three columns, like um, feeling, thought, behavior, and just almost having like a little arrow that goes between it. And I can just start identifying it that way. A nice, easy prompt, um, very clean, can leave spaces to fill things more in when I realize more things. Um, but I think that's that's exactly what I was looking for, just something that I can kind of start off on of if I don't really know what I'm like. And, Ideally, a therapist or a counselor or someone you can talk to will help give you those prompts and, and process those questions for you. But honestly, until you like start thinking about it, like you're not going to be able to answer those things off the top of your head. You're going to actually have to live those feelings through before you can actually go back and answer those questions anyway. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I really like about that exercise is it links it, right? It makes it kind of tangible of, okay, in a moment, if I don't, if I can't identify what I'm feeling, can I identify what I'm thinking? Can I identify what behavior I'm engaging? Social media is a good example, right? Okay, I'm scrolling on social media and then like, oh, I start to feel icky. Okay, this behavior isn't working for me. So what behavioral shift can I make, right? That will change that whole trajectory. So it's, if you can identify one of those points, then it gives us something to link on to. Another exercise that I, this is like through and through, but it's a little bit more abstract is values work. Um, 
So values work basically gives us a North star that we, the goal is to be in alignment with self, right? Or connected to self and values work gives us bumpers. Basically, if we're thinking of bowling, it like it keeps you in the lane you want to be in because yes. you're not that we don't, not that our lane doesn't shift and wind, but that we're making that choice. Um, and so values, values can orient us and, What's harder about values work is it takes it takes a little bit more time versus this DBT triangle you can access you can access quicker more on the fly to learn what are some what am I feeling what do I need to notice whereas values work over the course of time you'd identify what are my core values so not things that I like not things that I value but things that are intrinsic in my being so I always give the example of patience, I think is such a nice value. And I really admire people that are patient, but like, it's not on my top hundred. Like it's something I practice. It's something I work at. It's something that I set intentions around, but like, not a core value at all. And so I work at it, but it wouldn't be one of my core values. So we have about three to five core values at a time per season. And so for me, one of them is connection. That's something that is just innate in my being. And so I can access connection to help ground me and create alignment. So the best way, and again, Brene Brown has probably the best exercise for this is identifying what are those core values? And then you basically have to try them on. And this is where it takes longer. Of When I first started that work, it was about every other month I would reevaluate. Do those fit? Do they feel congruent for the season? And now I have about eight core values that kind of ebb and flow depending on the season. And when our oldest was, um, when I was pregnant with Camden, he, um, I happened to do my values work right before he was being, he was going to be born. And one of my core values was fun. And all of a sudden it was like off the list for the first time that I had started this exercise. I was like, what? I tried everything to like try to justify it back on the list in the way that I define it of it's got to be on there. I have to find a way to get this on there. And sure enough, I couldn't. And I kind of then said my dad was uh, had just gotten diagnosed at that point in time. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's because, you know, my dad is sick and I'm kind of grieving, grieving. And, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of hit me with a blanket. And what was interesting and then eventually like six months after he was born it came back on my list so now i do values work every six months because i've i've really refined my core values but while you're working on refining them you have to increase the frequency to learn like what are my core values and then brooke and gavin we have twins that are they're two and a half now but when they i was doing the values work right after they were born and fun yet again slipped off and it was really interesting not that there weren't like so many other like fulfilling and love and you know there were all these other wonderful things but fun was not on there it was yet again not on there and i was interesting something clicked that i went back and looked in my journal of oh my gosh this is the same time frame in which it slipped off with camden right so then we get to begin to notice patterns in our own cycles um that it gives us, um, for me, values work is able to connect me to purpose. It gives me intention. It gives me a great pause for the choices I'm making of, am I making this choice from a place of alignment? So that's another exercise that I highly, highly recommend. If our behaviors, we can then identify behaviors that are in alignment with our values or not in alignment. If we're snappy and more anxious, then we're likely not in alignment with our values. And so then how can we use our values to bring us back to alignment? I think that's uh, like amazing. We've actually talked about it slightly on, we had a relationships talk and like, you know, I similar identifying your core values for like 
what actually do you need in yourself? Like, what do you bring? Like, what are your core values? And like, what are you looking for? And it's like, really, like it changes. It's really hard. And what you think it might be like, just because like, like, let's use your patience example, just because like, you might be an impatient person and you know, or like, just because I lose things all the time, like I lose my keys every, that does not mean organization is what, like, that, that means like, that's probably not, like just what you think you need to work on just isn't necessarily always on there. Um, I think it's really important too, because I know you mentioned you transferred. I've had teammates that quit. Um, and like, let's say I've, I've had teammates that were in a sorority. Um, it's really hard. Volleyball is a fall sport. And so you're starting off your college experience, hitting the ground running in season. Like, so whatever the, the core value might be for you know, social interaction um, f- or fun, even let's say that's probably just not going to be on your fall fall core value, like your in-season core value. Maybe now come summer, that just got added. And the hard thing is though, if you don't identify that fun is not a core value while you're in season, all of a sudden you're unhappy because you're trying to make fun fit when that's actually not even one of your core values, but you think you're missing something that's not detrimental to, to you right now. So I think that's a really good point you bring up. I love that. And I think that because it can almost feel the first time, it can almost feel like an identity crisis, right? Of like, goo. That socialization piece or fun or whatever that value is that is for maybe the first identifiable time not there or going to college, the first term, go making any kind of transition, values are inevitably going to shift, which can oftentimes elicit panic, right? Which is another reminder of like emotions aren't the problem. It's how we are interfacing or reacting to them, right? So how do we make space for the emotion so that we can recognize, oh, this isn't, this is just a season that values and alignment is going to look different based off needs and what I'm choosing to engage with. Yes. No, I I think that makes perfect sense. And I'm trying to think like a lot of times, a lot of people are in team sports, or even if it's an individual sport, they have a team. Do you have any ideas for even coaches that are listening for how they can kind of implement this connectivity and emotion check-in, or even if it's just a a team captain that's listening, that says they want to start trying to be more in touch with these things. Um, Do you have any ideas on how this can be transferable in a team environment if they just want to start doing some some check-ins or identify this totally oh my gosh the fact that you're even asking that question just makes me like beam with so much hope of that's exactly what we need like how transformative would it be if these conversations were happening at the preseason camp at you know let's begin to name it it's kind of that door opener again right how do we open these as a team and create a collective meaning for myself i have individual values we have marriage values that adam and i have done together and then we have thrive values so it looks different in different dynamics and systems and so what a beautiful thing if teams and or captains or coaches whoever it is that initiated that process of Let's create shared language. Let's create a time that we're going to sit down and we're going to process and we're going to make team agreements that this is what we can expect from each other. This is let's open that door to dialogue of we're going to be here for each other. And I I'm I lean towards um, kind of the processing end. I I've actually like toyed and created some templates of programs for athletic teams because I'm like we have to have something I'm sure there's something out there that's like a a program that's created um a one one template that's probably the best that I know of is the desire maps by Danielle Laporte she has it's the it's a it's a pretty small book and the first part is um it's a book and the second part is a workbook that's all based off feelings so it's kind of a process oriented 
discussion that I think a team or a captain would be able to draw from that in terms of facilitating this discussion or maybe bringing somebody in. I mean, I think a lot of schools, not all schools have a sports psychologist or somebody who's on their staff who maybe that would be a great opportunity to bring that person in. And interestingly enough, talk to a friend of mine who's a college coach and she does that. She brings their sports psychologist in at the very beginning of the season to um, talk, kind of talk with the group and facilitate some discussions about exactly these things, connectivity to self, learning values, alignment, advocacy, knowing needs, and then they one are establishing the relationship with the sports psychologist right off the bat and then are able to access him or her at any point in time if they want to. Um, so I think that's brilliant. I would love to see that become kind of the norm. Yeah, I agree. We had a sports psychologist, but he was kind of there, like he just introduced, hey, I'm a sports psychologist. Come to me if you have any questions. Um, he was very nice and kind and he came to team meals and we all liked him as a person. Like it wasn't like, but like, I know not many people like utilized him because we just didn't really understand the full intent of what he was there for. Um, and I was thinking back to, we actually had core values. Um, however, mm -hmm. they were identified by the coaches and like, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not, this kind of sounds rigid. We're told to us, um, like these are your core values. And I think it would be interesting, even if those ended up being the core values we ended up with having them almost more as a, Hey, here's a list of core values that have been on our teams in past. Let's take a look. And even if it's like prioritizing, like let's get the order or like, let's see if we need to add any, remove any, like, so it feels more like it's not, um, rules and more like, Hey, let's fit this to our team culture. Um, I think is another good good idea from what you said. I, and we all have different, I mean, even if we were both to choose the word connection, our definition of that would be different, right? So if, if we're given words, one, we can't just adhere, we can, this can be maybe even the program's philosophy and some of their mission. And that's one thing. And that's, you know, that's great. There's some orientation there, but yeah, that processing of how does each individual's voice get brought to the equation, right? I think that's one of the things that, it's a collective group and each person needs to feel seen and heard and valued. And I know based off of my college experience, we were a number. I mean, I was not a human on the team. It was, how can you perform? How good are you? What are your results? And that's really all we care about. And if you fall off, like we will replace you with somebody else. Yeah. And that's just icky, right? And not all teams are like that. Thank goodness. Um, but yeah, finding a way to extract each individual's voice for this collective group would be amazing of not just as uh, not just didactic or giving a, you know, a presentation on, but really making sure that it's kind of the sit down, more process oriented. Everybody gets to be contributing if they want to and feel comfortable. And generally what we see is over time, even if it's not something that's comfortable right off the bat, similar to the example you gave of yourself, right, of. We sit in a therapist's office and the first time it's going, all right, I mean, I, I don't know, let's see how this goes. And then over time you establish the rapport as long as the person's the right fit, right? You're gonna establish a rapport and begin to feel more comfortable and disclose more and contribute more. And so I think just the consistency of integrating that just like we do weight programs or just like we do you know, stretching programs or recovery, um, the emotional element, the team agreement element, I think that would be a beautiful thing to see unfold. Yeah. And as a small note, I want you to say, I love that you said the correct fit because like how we haven't probably all loved all the coaches we've had. I haven't loved all the, the therapists or counselors, or uh, let's say sports psychologists. I mean, I'm sure in every field, 
nutritionists, athletic trainers, like teachers, you're not going to like everyone, but that doesn't mean you stop going to school because you didn't like your third grade teacher. So keep with it. Um, you might be sticking it out for a season. Like you bought a little package, you go to your three sessions, um, but don't be afraid to try again. Cause I think that's the biggest thing that helped me is really when I made a switch, that's when I was like, Oh, I found my group. I didn't even know it could be um, talking to someone could be like this until then. Totally. The fit is so important. And, you know, you don't, and I'd say for people trust your gut. Cause sometimes, I mean, I feel like most of us who have gone to therapy, there has been somebody who wasn't the right fit. Right. And then that's that mind over matter of like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying it and maybe it's going to get better. And it's like, really trust your gut. And hopefully the therapist would be receptive to helping you then find the right fit. Right. It isn't, it isn't about hurting the therapist's feelings. The most important part of that process is that that individual who's entering the room is getting out of it what they need, right? Yes. And so, um, yeah, the fit is important. And there's oftentimes misses. But, I mean, websites and stuff are helping with that a bit, just in terms of you can get kind of a gauge and feel for. They really are. Like, they're very open. And I think that's the nice thing. No therapist is going to be offended if they're like, I want a little more whole, like not holistic, but like some people like more natural remedies and meditation. Some people are like, they want more Q and a, you know, and people just process differently. So I think that's, that's a good point. Okay. Well, so that is all the questions I had on connectivity. And I honestly, I think we hit that really well. Um, but yeah, do you have any final takeaways either on connectivity, empowerment, mental health, you'd like to leave our listeners with? I am just so grateful that you are creating this platform. It's I, I, I mean, to come off the cusp of the last question of you're normalizing it, you are doing that you're making this more preventable and accessible to folks earlier up that ladder of naming it so that people don't have to name it that you're, you know, kind of staying ahead of that. And I hope that I hope that this work can become something that that all people one have access to right i mean there's so many this could be a whole nother like tangent of you know insurance and things of that nature that make it prohibitive of ways the ways that we can make it accessible to all people mental health should not be a privilege it is really a human right and so making sure that that people have access to it and 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 utilize it um and we begin to integrate it in all these other venues so thank you for doing that yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really unique just because social media for me has been kind of a place that's been hit or miss in my life. And so to now be in this kind of nice corner of it and being able to use social media um, for such like good and seeing like coaches that are tagging their athletes or coaches reaching out to us and sharing it with their team. Um, it's just so nice because those are the things that like, uh, you know, not my, again, I had great coaches, but they just didn't really like, I feel like have necessarily the resources to provide us them. And that was only 10 years ago. Um, so I think it's really, really cool um, that these conversations are being normalized and happening and that people like you who know a lot more, because Taylor and I were just former athletes. Like, I don't want to say just former athletes, but we don't have the same levels of expertise and schooling and access to resources we have. So we're really appreciative when people like you come on to help educate not only us, but our community, because um, ultimately the more resources and pooling people together we have to help these athletes um, in one place is, is phenomenal. So thank you so much for coming on and helping us. Um, I learned a lot and I, I am not even a current athlete because it's, it's so nice seeing like our age demographic started as um, like 
graduated college because that was Taylor and I, then it moved to college athletes. And now we're even getting a lot of high school athletes. So it's really nice to see kind of it trickled down and down and down and seeing, seeing that it's important to start at an earlier age. Totally. And that they're accessing it and that you're tailoring that to what those needs are and people are needing it and wanting it. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I will link that stuff. Um, I will link your, your page. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We'll be in contact in the future. I'm sure with some follow-up things, but thank you so much for coming on. We will, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for having me.